Now that, that phrase I wanted you to underline in, in verse 2 of chapter 2 where he says, the word spoken through angels. Now what's he talking about there? The Apostle Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. He speaks of, talking about the Old Testament law, he says, God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and man. So in a way that's kind of a mystery, in a way that was kind of hard for us to sort of explain in detail, the Scripture testifies that when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, the angels were involved in that process. They are involved in communicating things to Moses from God. In fact, the word angel means messenger. It means messenger. And we talked last week in the first four verses of Hebrew in introducing this book We talked about how Jesus is a better message and how God had spoken in times past in various ways through the prophets is now spoken through his son. And we said that Jesus is that message. He's the perfect message because he's the substance of all that the prophets were speaking about and hoping for. And he's the conclusion of all the things that the prophets were hoping for and speaking of. But now he's kind of carrying on with that same thought, but instead of focusing on just the fact that Jesus is a better message, now the author of Hebrews wants to focus on Jesus is a better messenger. That he he himself isn't just the message, but he's the one who speaks. And this is important. It's important because one, of course, when the author of Hebrews is writing this, these Hebrews, these Jewish people who were believers in Jesus, had great kind of reverence towards angels. There's a mystery about angels, what they are, what they do. The Scripture doesn't say that much about them, except as we're going to see today, they're created beings who are created to serve God and do His bidding, but they they are messengers, where their name comes from. And so with that, what, what, what you have is the author of Hebrews wanted to say, listen, I know that you revere that God has spoken through angels, even the very law of God came through the the work of angels to Moses. But there's a better messenger, someone who says something greater than what Moses said. Now, what's interesting about this as well is that there's actually several influential world religions whose whole idea of where they got truth from God came from the mediation of angels, angels speaking. So if you go back to about the 1870s, uh, you, you read about a guy, a guy named um, Charles Taze Russell, who basically was, had been a part of a normal kind of Christian group and then got into some really weird ideas and came up with this idea that Jesus uh, wasn't God's son, as the author of Hebrews makes super clear, we'll see today, but that Jesus was simply an angel, perhaps Michael the archangel, and that kind of spread into different kind of ideas, some of which are now the modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, kind of their whole background is based on, their whole religion is based on that Jesus isn't God the Son, as we'll see today, but that he is just Michael the Archangel. Then you look uh, just a few years uh, before this, you had a man named Joseph Smith in New York in the United States who uh, supposedly was told by an angel named Moroni uh, that uh, there are some golden plates buried, and on those golden plates you'll find some new revelation about who Jesus is. And he gets these golden plates, and they kind of create the substance of what's called now the Book of Mormon. And so Mormons believe that the sort of basis for their faith is revelation from an angel. If you go back even farther, you go back to about the 6th century or the 7th century 
uh, uh, A.D., you, you see that there was a, a, a man who was um, uh, beginning to have, vi- he thought he was having visions from God, and eventually the angel Gabriel supposedly comes and gives him this new revelation about who Jesus is, about what the truth is. His name was Muhammad. And all of the basis of Islam is based on this revelation supposedly from an angel. What's interesting about these things is we're just believing the private interpretation of these people if we believe it, which we don't. But it's about, you have to believe me, an angel set. You've got to believe me, an angel set. That's kind of the mindset of these three major religions that represent a significant portion of the earth's population. Huge. That they all believe that this is revelation of angels. So this is not just something that we need to kind of understand theoretically or theologically. There's a practical truth of this, that there's been literally millions upon millions of people deceived away from the truth of Jesus into these other false religions. In fact, it's interesting, listen, Paul said earlier in the book of Galatians this, listen, again I'm quoting from the NLT, he says, let God's curse fall upon anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. Paul said that in about 50 A.D., 600 years before Muhammad, almost eight, in 1800 years before Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell. And you can get this idea that Paul wrote these things, the Scripture warns us of these things because anyone can say they heard from God and then try to Get people to follow them. It happens all the time. It's amazing to me how many people get sucked into these cults and these false religions because, well, someone said it was true. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, but John, don't you say that to us every week? Don't you say to me every week, well, God says it's true. I'm telling you God said it's true. But here's the difference, and this is, one of the, this is the motivation behind the author of Hebrews. Here's the difference. Jesus, our faith in Jesus starts with Jesus, who is an historical figure. Someone who came to this earth, we know where he was born, we know where he grew up, tons of people witnessed him, secular, non-Christian, non-religious historians of his day talk about his existence, talk about his teachings, talk about his, what they would call supposed miracles, talk about his death on the cross, and we start with him, someone who is able to, who was able to be observed, who was tested, who made these massive claims about who he was and what he could do. And that's radically different than someone just saying, oh, an angel told me. In fact, we're talking about not just some sort of angel, but we're talking about, as we'll see, God the Son, who didn't just do all these radical miracles and say these great things about him, but said, I will prove it by my death and then what? Resurrection. And so what the author of Hebrews wants to do is he wants to kind of say, look, I want to make an argument for this. I want you to recognize that Jesus is a better messenger than any angel you have heard or may hear in the future. That what, what, what he says about himself, what he says about God is the final authority. That's what he's trying to say. Now, what he does here is he, he, he does a kind of a... Um, he uses a technique that was very common in Hebrew rhetoric. It was called stringing a pearl. 
And he basically lines up seven Old Testament quotations, and he kind of just fires them out rapid fire, boom, 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 to try to make a point about something. Which is why when we read it out loud, you're probably going, what is this about? I mean, it is hard to follow. If you, if you don't know the Hebrew Scriptures well, if you're not sure of what, what he's, the point he's trying to make, but he was doing what a lot of Hebrew teachers would have done. He was kind of stringing the pearls, boom, 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 seven in a row to say, here's the main point I'm going to make. This is his argument. So really what I want to talk with you guys today about is just two main things. One, from verses 5 to verse 14 of Hebrews 1, the argument. What's the argument he's trying to make? And I'll, I'll give it to you right now. I'll, I'll tell you what the argument is before I start stringing the pearls myself, okay? It's the fact that, it's the fact that Jesus is God. Amen. That's it. It's very simple. It's very simple. It's, it's life-changing. It's hugely impactful. It's a deal-breaker because either he is or he isn't. Didn't say he is a God, he's the God. That's his argument. But then there's also, uh, it's obvious in the first four verses of chapter four, this is the response, this is the application. Okay, so if Jesus is God, if he's God the Son, how should we respond to that? So that's what we want to look at today. So he says, verse five, to which of the angels did God ever say, and when he says he knows it's capitalized, it's speaking of God speaking, uh, I should say, by the way, just as a side note, this is one of the many indications in the Scripture itself that the authors of the New Testament believed that the Old Testament was written by God. Not like with a pen and paper, but that God inspired every word that was written. That was their belief. Whether you believe it or not, that was their belief. So he says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? He's quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And he's, the, the Psalm chapter 2 is a, what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about God's chosen king. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ, God's chosen king. And it says about the Messiah when he comes that God will say to him, you are my son. That's huge in a Hebrew mind. And again, he, then he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And in that context, it's, it's where... God is telling Solomon that Messiah is going to come through his line, or telling, sorry, David, that the Messiah is going to come through his line. And God says to David, I will be to this Messiah, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so the author of Hebrews is wanting to be really clear. Listen, there's something unique to the sonship of Jesus. And Paul backs this up in Romans chapter, uh, in Romans chapter 2, which I don't think I have on the screen. Sorry. So I'm going, to re- I'm going to find it and I'm going to read it to you really quick. Romans chapter 2. You don't have to turn there because it will take too long. So let me just find it uh, and then I'll read it to you. You can write it down, look it up later. Romans chapter 2. And I think it's, oh no, sorry, Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Listen to this, okay? It says, Which God promised beforehand through the pro- uh, to the prophets in his holy scriptures, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. He's the fulfilled promise that that we just read. Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, listen, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So, So Paul is introducing the book of Romans in a way that confirms what the author of Hebrews is saying here, which is this, listen, that Jesus is uniquely God's son. 
There's no other son like Jesus. He's God the Son. Always existed with God, always will exist with God. God himself. He's uniquely God's son. How do we know that? He rose from the dead. Now, he goes on, continuing the same argument, okay? Verse, five, uh, verse 6 and 7. He says, but when he begins, the, or when he again brings the firstborn, it, could be, it should be translated again when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And, and, the, and to, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels, in other words, angels were created, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, now understand what's going on here. He's not just saying, listen, that Jesus has been proven uniquely the Son of God, but also that as such, he's commanded by God, or the, the angels are commanded by God to worship him. Now, you've got to understand how significant this is. Because the Bible's really clear, and we see this in, testified, that neither angels nor apostles, no, nor the, like the 12 guys that followed Jesus, neither of those guys would ever have received worship from somebody. Let me read you a couple examples, a couple of scriptures. Listen to this. Acts chapter 10, right? This is an apostle, Peter. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, hey, stand up. I myself am also a man. Cornelius was someone seeking after God. God gives him this grand vision, says someone's going to come and tell you about my son Jesus. Peter comes up and says, I'm that guy, here you go. And when he comes in the room, what happens? This guy's so blown away, he begins to worship Peter. And Peter's like, oh, no, no, you can't worship me. I'm just a man. Same thing happens to an angel who's giving the book of Revelation to John. When John hears it, listen, it says, Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to, to me, These things are the true sayings of God. And what, what does John do? He says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, so you guys see what I'm trying to say here? That neither apostles nor angels would receive worship from God, but Jesus does. Check this out. Jesus does. John chapter 20, listen to this. You guys know the story, Doubting Thomas, right? And Thomas said, uh, answered and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. This is when he sees Jesus resurrected, and Jesus says, hey, go ahead and stick your finger in my side and put your finger in my hands. And he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. He didn't say, whoa, Thomas, I'm just kind of a son. I'm like a, the, the biggest angel. That's all. Don't, you don't have to say that about me. He says, no, no, no. You believe that I am your God because you've seen. But even more blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Check this out as well. In the book of Revelation, now when he had taken the scroll, that's Jesus, that's the glorified Christ, the Lamb of God. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, that's Jesus, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy. Who are they singing to? The Lamb. You are worthy to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Guys, listen, do you realize when we on a Sunday morning, we come here and we sing praise songs to Jesus, 
that for many people in the world, that's blasphemy. Because they're saying you're singing to a man songs of praise because Jesus was indeed human. And they would be right if Jesus hadn't claimed to be God the Son, if Jesus hadn't revealed to us what God was like, if Jesus wouldn't have wouldn't done all the things that only God can do, and Jesus wouldn't have been able to rise from the dead, it would be blasphemous for us to worship him. But because it's, he's God, it's not. It's right. It's right to worship him. This is where he's going. You see, here's the real reality. Angels give worship, but Jesus receives worship. That's kind of the first point that he's trying to make in the stream. Here's the second point he's trying to make. Listen, angels serve temporarily, but Jesus reigns eternally. Look what he says, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your, notice, to the Son, God says, your throne, O God. Let me read it again, okay? Let me try to paraphrase it so you see it clearly. To the Son, God says, your throne, O God. God the Father says to God the Son, your throne, O God. Can you, do you need another verse that proves to you that Jesus is God? That at least that's what these guys believed? Listen, remember this is 600 years before Muhammad was born. Listen, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, for you have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, this is what we call a reference to the Trinity. God, God, the Father, your God, you being the God the Son, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Oil in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, actually throughout the Scripture, oil testifies of the work of God's Spirit. That's what we mean by anointing. This is a reference to the Trinity, God being three in one. Now check this out. This is really good stuff. Listen. He's saying this. He's saying, look at God's Son displayed God's character. You would expect God to love what's right, Right? You would expect God to hate what's wrong, right? We do. We hate injustice, don't we? We would expect God, listen, to have the oil of gladness more than his companions. Would you expect that? Here's one of the things that we have to get through our head. The Bible reveals, through Jesus, the Bible reveals our God, not just as the creator of all things, not just the judge of all things, he's both those things, but as a God of eternal joy. Why do you think crowds of people follow Jesus? Because he was walking around going, get away, you sinners. You're bound for hell. He had no problem talking about hell. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in Scripture. But they were attracted to him because he was a man of joy. He knew how great it was to know God the Father. The joy that he had was a joy that was from eternity past. A joy that's eternal, always lasting. He experienced that. He displayed that. God the Son displays God's character. Listen, verse 10. You, uh, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, one of the many places in the New Testament that testifies that Jesus is the creator. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but notice, you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but notice, you are the same, and your years shall not fail. Now, Wait a second. You might be thinking, okay, John, wait a second. We know that Jesus had to have had a beginning point, right? Because he was born. That's what Christmas is about. 
True. Jesus, who is 100% man, that the manness of him, the humanness of him, had a beginning point. Psalms talks about how there was a, a body was created for him. But God the Son is eternal. He's always existed. He's never changing. And this is important because this whole idea of not changing, unchangeableness, immutability is the theological word. This idea is something that is unique to God. Only God doesn't change. Only God is purely perfect. And Jesus, in his essence, who he is, not in his humanness, but who he is in his essence as God, never changes. In other words, God's Son possesses God's attributes. But which of the angels has he ever said, verse 13, I'm almost done, which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? And then he says of angels, are not, all, are not they all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Now he's talking about, he's quoting there Psalm 110, one of the most quoted psalms in all the New Testament. And he's trying to make the point here, listen, he's trying to make the point that God's son rules God's kingdom. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, didn't he? Well, who should rule the kingdom of God? God. <laughs> it's his kingdom. Who rules it according to Scripture? Jesus, that's the point. Now, at this point, well, let me read one more scripture to you before I move on, okay? Luke chapter 20, listen to this. Jesus said to them, he's, he quotes Psalm 110, 110. Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the Son of God? Now, David himself said, to, said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is it that he, uh, he then is his son? Now, what Jesus is doing here is because Jesus was claiming to be deity, the religious leaders of his day, the Jewish religious leaders thought, you can't say you're God, that's blasphemous. Okay, maybe you're trying to say you're the Messiah, but you can't say you're God's son. How can you be God the son? That's blasphemous. And he says, okay, is that really blasphemous? Is that really what the Scripture teaches? Because what does the Psalm 110 say about the Messiah? David says he's his Lord, though he's his son. How can that be? How can he be his Lord when he hasn't even been born yet? Do you understand? That's the point he's trying to make. Now listen, I know for some of you, you're thinking, oh, John, I already believe that. I came here today. I already knew that Jesus was God. You don't have to convince me. Uh, but do you understand why that's the case? Because just because you believe something doesn't mean it's true. Do you understand? This is what this book testifies, that this isn't just some sort of vague theological point. This is what me makes your faith worth something. Because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, the Bible says your faith is in vain. You're wasting your time, man. In fact, Paul says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, you, as Christians, are among God's, among people on this earth, the most pitiable. You're the biggest losers on the planet if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Because if you believe Jesus has risen from the dead, it's a game changer. It should change the way you live your life every day. If he's actually God. I think it was uh, Sheryl Crow who sang the song, What If God Was One of Us, way back in the 90s, yeah? Exactly, that's the one. What if he was a slob like one of us? Just a stranger on a bus, whatever it goes, right? And what's interesting, I remember the first time I heard that song, I think I saw it, I was on a movie or something, and I remember hearing that song and thinking, 
what if God was one of us? God came. God clothed himself as one of us. Do you realize how profound that is? How that changes everything. Can you see why the author Hughes would say, why are you wasting your time listening to an angel when God himself pierced history and spoke? Why waste your time with angels? Now, that's the argument, okay? The string of pearls laid out. Now, in chapter 2, the first four verses, he says, here's the application. Notice he says, verse 1, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Notice he says, lest we drift away. So the, the argument is this. Jesus is God, not just an angel. He's, he's a better messenger. He's God the Son. The application is, don't drift away from him. It's interesting that he says, don't drift away. Sometimes we think about God as, as sort of out there, and either we believe or we don't, either, either we walk with him or we don't. And that's, there's truth to that. But we forget how easy it is for us to drift. He's, he's using here, the author of Hebrews is using nautical terms, terms about like shipping and boats. <clears throat> and what he's talking here is, is really, he's not talking about like an instant rebellion. He's not talking about like someone going, nah, I don't want that Jesus, or no, I give up on Christianity. He's not talking about that. He's talking about, listen, a gradual compromise, a drift. He's talking about like what happens to a boat that might have came into a safe harbor, but it's not anchored securely. The anchor breaks loose, and the boat just kind of floats until it gets, all of a sudden, it's out of the safe harbor, and it's in danger, dangerous waters. Drift. This is what can happen to us. This is what can happen to us when we stop glorying and the fact that Jesus, whom we worship, is both God and man. When we stop realizing that God, who created all things and holds all things in his hand, became a man so that he could have a real relationship with you and me. It's when we, we drift from that that we find ourselves in dangerous waters. He's not just about, do I feel good or am I doing all these right things it's not just about, okay, do I believe or I don't believe? It's not just that. It's about, do I recognize who he is and why he's came, or am I drifting away from that? Do I find myself gradually kind of moving away? I'd be willing to bet some of you guys that are students who grew up in Christian homes know what that feels like. Because you kind of grew up in Christian homes and you kind of come to university and you think, yeah, I believe in this Jesus stuff and I should be in a good church, but you just find yourself doing little things. Maybe things that your parents said, you shouldn't do this, but you realize the Bible doesn't actually say I shouldn't do that, so no big deal. And you take a little step here and a little, make a little decision there and you find yourself all of a sudden to a place where you just go, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus stuff anymore. And you non-students, especially you older people, you think, no, no, I have, I've been a Christian a long time now. I know the right answers. I know what I'm supposed to believe. I know what I'm supposed to pray. I know how to pray. I know how to read my Bible. 
and you think, you know, I couldn't possibly drift, but are you anchored to your own good deeds? Are you anchored to Jesus? Because if not, you're going to just drift, and you're going to find yourself in dangerous waters. He goes on to say, listen, verse 2. He says, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, he's talking about the Old Testament law that's still sustained, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. In other words, God's really clear in his law. If you break this law, there's judgment, and God's been faithful to judge, scary as that is. He says, then how shall we escape, notice, if we neglect so great a salvation? See, this idea about not drifting from God, it's not so much about, oh, I, I got to stop pursuing the bad. It's really often what it is, drifting is neglecting the good. You guys remember the old song? You guys know the old song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. I won't sing it because it's not edifying. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I can't sing. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, you know. Oh, oh, what peace we often forfeit by not bringing everything to him in prayer. It's a great song. I wish we'd sing it, to be honest. It's a great old song. It sounds kind of corny, but it's awesome lyrics. Because here's the truth, man. Here's the truth. This Jesus, this creator of the universe, calls you friend if you believe in him. If you've trusted in his death for your sins, his resurrection, he says, the kind of relationship I want to have with you is friend. You know, I don't have very many friends in high places. I just don't. Maybe because I'm too rebellious, I just kind of push authority away. I don't know what it is. But I don't have very many friends in high places. But I have a friend, the friend, capital F, in Jesus, who I can talk to anytime who gives me his full attention because he can do that. He's God. He can give me full attention and you full attention at the same time. See, it's, it's us drifting away from that. It's us neglecting the reality that we can go right into God's presence, which we're going to talk about in a couple chapters. It's us forgetting that, I don't know if you, you guys realize this, if you, if you don't know the history of your Bible, you should, you should do some Google searches on the English Bible and how you got this. Do you know that in Cambridge, just a half an hour drive from here, people were burned at the stake for giving you this Bible in your language? And we, oh, it's kind of boring. It's hard to understand. John preaches a long time. Doesn't that count? <laughs> this is what we do. Now again, I'm obviously here, let me be really clear, I'm obviously talking to those of you who are already believers in Jesus. If this is all new to you, you're going, I don't even know when this works, that's okay, just stay with us. But if you're a believer in Jesus, this is the reality, okay? Don't drift from him. Don't let the gradual compromise come in. Don't let that neglecting of the good, his presence, his words, his people. We'll talk about that in chapter 10. But notice what he says, listen, if we neglect so great a salvation, understand the seriousness of what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if we neglect Jesus, even if you do all the good stuff, oh, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, but your faith is not in Jesus, there's no salvation for you. 
Our salvation isn't based on what we do, it's based on what he's done. And because of what he's done, we get to do what we do. Does that make sense? Now he goes on to say, listen, if we neglect this, he says, which at first uh, began to be spoken by the Lord, that Jesus himself spoke these things to, notice, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now follow this. The author of Hebrews is saying this. Jesus spoke these things to his apostles and we heard the apostles say these things. You know what that means? First generation accounts. They heard these things, the author of Hebrews heard these things about Jesus from people who walked with Jesus, touched Jesus, heard Jesus, saw Jesus do miracles. He was one of those first century early church believers, the guy who wrote this. We don't know who wrote it, but we know from that evidence that's who he was. And he says this, listen, these guys spoke these things and here's how God, we knew that God was that these guys were for real. These apostles were for real. One, they saw all that Jesus did. They had no reason to lie because they were being persecuted for saying this. But also, listen, God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, the apostles did the same kind of crazy stuff that Jesus did. They rose people from the dead. They healed people with a word. They saw miracles happen. Why? Because they had some kind of cool power that they could just use whenever they wanted? No, because God wanted to say, listen to these guys. They saw my son. They know my son. And their message every time was not, check us out, we rock, we can do powerful things. It was always, trust this Jesus. Have a relationship with this Jesus. Humble yourself before this Jesus. Every time. That's the application. That's the reality. Jesus is a better messenger. He's better than any angel, any false religion, and don't be offended by this, he's better than you. <laughs> See, you have your own ideas about who God is and about how, what, what's life about and what truth is, but as far as I know, none of you here have done any miracles, at least not beyond the power of God. Maybe some of you guys have been involved in miracles, but you know what I'm saying. None of you has risen anybody from the dead. But Jesus did. None of you can claim to be God's son. And if any of you heard from an angel and that angel said anything other than what's in this book, the angel lied to you. 